Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do the people say I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them not to tell Sorry, to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to give the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. My name's Ken Matthews, and I'm the minister here. If we haven't had a chance to meet uh, yet, then that's who I am, and I hope I get a chance to find out your name later on. I have here a pair of crutches. Um, I've uh, uh, had to use these actually a few times in recent months. You will have seen me, uh, some of you, hobbling around on them. But the most memorable time I had to use some crutches like these was when I tore ankle ligaments aged 21. It was a football-related incident, so please don't get your hankies out. I do not expect any sympathy at all. It happened while I was in prison. Uh, And I need to hastily add uh, there that I was not there at Her Majesty's pleasure. I was playing in a football tournament as part of the prison's open week. Now, goodness knows what a prison does having an open week, but I feel like I went in walking like a free man, yet came out hobbling, not feeling quite so free. It was a crunching tackle, bone-jarring tackle, but it wasn't the inmates who did it. It was not the prison guards, even. It was a team of Roman Catholic priests (laughs) who nailed me in the first minute just to show how seriously they were taking it. And I have to say that I remember, I remember actually that um, the pain in my leg was actually seriously outweighed by the shock of seeing that I'd been taken out uh, by a short, uh, fat, bald man who looked a lot like Friar Tuck. I kid you not, seriously. That's exactly how he looked. I couldn't believe I'd been taken out by him. But the first question I want to ask this morning is basically, how do we define something like these? How do you define them? What actually makes something a crutch? Well, I'd like to say there's three things, I think, that make something a crutch. A crutch is artificial, a means of artificial support. I needed a crutch because my natural means of support wasn't working, i.e. my leg. Secondly, a crutch is only needed by a few people. Normal, healthy people don't normally need a crutch. It's only needed if there's something wrong with you. And a crutch makes life easier in the short term. And it was a great help for me in those uh, few weeks that I was recovering after my brush with that turbulent priest. 
But I remember one of the things the doc said to me was, the sooner you get off these crutches and back onto your own two legs, the better. I mean, none of us wants to be on crutches for the rest of our life. No, they're temporary. Well, the assertion that Christianity is a psychological crutch was first raised by Sigmund Freud, who was the founder of psychoanalysis in the 19th century. He said that the Christian idea of God as father was uh, just an imaginary crutch. It is the projection of our need for our parents once they've gone. So we grow up, but, but our inner child still longs for the security our parents brought us. And so we project that need onto a heavenly father in the skies. It's understandable, Freud said, but it's merely wish fulfillment. And he would have said, as others have said to me down through the years, that Christianity is like a crutch because, one, it's artificial. It's imaginary. It's just for the gullible. It's, it's like praying into thin air. Two, it's only for a few people who can't cope with real life without something to prop them up. And three, it's escapist. It just makes it easier for people. It's a, it's, it's, it kind of makes things cozier in the short term. And this morning, I want to look at those three claims in order. So let me start by asking, firstly, is Christianity just an artificial support? Well, the truth of the Christian faith depends not on a feeling or an experience. It depends on a person. It all depends on who this guy, Jesus Christ, really is. And that was precisely the question being debated in that Bible reading we had earlier on from Mark chapter 8. Did you see that in verse 27? Have a look with me at that um, in your Bibles or up on the screen behind me. Verse 27 says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And that's exactly what happens today, doesn't it? If you were to go down onto Northumberland Street or across into the metro centre and you were to shove a microphone under people's uh, noses and say, who do you think Jesus was? Some of them would say, well, he was a great religious leader. Others would say, oh, a, a prophet. And still others, they'd say, well, he was a great teacher. Same thing as it is today as it was then. People watching from a distance, knowing that he's someone special but just not quite sure who he really is. And it's like that when you ask anybody's identity, isn't it? So if I was asked to ask you this morning, who do you say I am? I mean, some of you don't know me from Adam, so you'd be totally stumped. Others, you, you've been coming along to the church for a little while, so you'd know some bits and pieces about that. You'd be able to stab a guess. But it's only really my closest friends or family members who know who I really am. And so if we were to ask them that question, they would answer immediately and without hesitation, male model, bodybuilder, king of comedy, leadership guru, the mother Teresa of men. Or in my dreams, I'd like to think they'd say something like that. But you get the point, don't you? You can't really know who someone is when you're just looking at them from a distance. And the crowds heard about Jesus and they watched him from a distance. Just like many people do today, keeping him off at arm's length, not getting too close, relying on second-hand truths and opinions, rather than checking it out for themselves. But Peter and Jesus' other disciples, they had seen him up close and personal. 
So when Jesus turns to them in verse 29 and he asks, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Three years Peter had lived, ate, slept in close proximity to Jesus. So he was there when Jesus uh, tamed a raging storm at sea. Just by saying to the winds and the waves, quiet, be still, like you would when you're trying to get a puppy to sit. The only difference is the storm sat. Peter was there when Jesus raised a 12-year-old girl from the dead, as if he was just waking her up from a nap. He was there when a man completely out of control, in the grip of some personal force of evil, was completely restored. When a cripple got up and walked, when a lame man was healed, and a blind man got his sight back, he was there. Now, can I just say that if you're looking into Christianity for the first time, the possibility of miracles might feel somewhat implausible to you. But it wasn't just the Bible writers that speak of them. A non-Christian historian at the time, a fellow called Josephus, calls Jesus a doer of wonderful deeds in his writings. And there are many other non-Christian historians of the time who speak of, write of, the claims that the early Christians made. And Peter was actually there, seeing Jesus face to face. So when Jesus asked him, but who do you say I am? Without hesitation, he says, you are the Christ. Now, the word Christ isn't just Jesus' surname. You wouldn't find it under C in the Nazareth phone book. No, it means God's anointed king. So you see what Jesus actually, see what Peter is actually saying about Jesus. He's saying, you're actually the king who God promised in the Old Testament, who was going to come and put an end to evil and make all things right again. You're not just another prophet saying the king's on the way. You are him the king. Now, Peter said that because of what he'd witnessed, because of what he'd seen. But you and I can still read about it in the rest of Mark's gospel and see it there for ourselves. And can I just say, that's what each one of us needs to do if we're not just to make judgments about Jesus from afar, relying on just what others say. We need to check it out for ourselves. So please do take one of these free copies of Mark's gospel that are on the display racks around the church as you go this morning. And can I also invite you uh, to come to a pub discussion we're holding at the Fox and Hounds pubs, pub up there on, west, on the West Road on Monday the 5th of June, two weeks, uh, a week on Monday at 8 p.m. We'll grab a drink and then we'll have a little look at Mark's Gospel and then you can fire away with any questions you've got about Christianity. For when it comes to this phrase, you are the Christ, If that's true, that that Jesus isn't merely a great figure in history, like the crowd said, but he actually is the Lord of history, God himself, then Christianity can't be artificial. As it's got historical clothing, it's based on solid evidence. There's a mountain of evidence that can be investigated here. So what do you think? Why don't you join me in the pub on the 5th of June to check that out? Well, if it isn't artificial... Is Christianity, secondly, just for the weak? A crutch is, after all, only for a few people who need it because their legs aren't working. Is that true of Christianity, of Christian faith? Is it just for those who can't cope without something to prop them up in life? Well, have a look at verse 31, will you? Where it says, and he, that's Jesus, 
began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders of the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now the Greek word must there means necessary for certain great ends. So Jesus says, I am the Son of Man and I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must be killed. I must rise again. He's adamant that these things had to happen because we needed him to do that for us. In other words, every single man, woman, uh, or child in the world needs what he was going to do that first Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Now, the mere fact that we have a need and there is something around to satisfy that need does not make that something a crutch. So let me give you an example. We all need food, don't we? Does that make food a crutch? Well, you might say that some people could survive without food for a long time. I think you can go for about two, three months without food. But I have been reliably informed that if you do that, after a while, you do start to feel a little peckish. We all need food. But what about water? Is water a crutch? Well, you can survive without that for probably less than a week. What about air? Is air a crutch? Well, you can survive even less without air. And speaking of someone who has chronic lung uh, condition, I'm going to survive a lot, lot, lot less. Um, I'm going to go a lot quicker than most of you guys. But Ken, you might say, those are all physical things. If you don't have those things, you're going to die. It's not like if you don't have Christianity, you're going to wind up dead. Well, actually, that's precisely what Jesus is saying here. Either he dies or we do. You see, he must be killed. Not to meet our physical needs, but to meet our spiritual ones. So that I can be forgiven and be saved from spiritual death. I mean, one will have this sneaking suspicion that there is a God, don't we? And that he is a good God. And the Bible confirms it to us time and time again. But the Bible also makes it clear that we have taken his good gifts. Gifts of love, life, laughter, fun, friendship, uh, uh, family, finance... They're all from him, and we take those gifts, yet we ignore him, the giver. Whether consciously or subconsciously, we have all dethroned God from his rightful place in our lives. And when we treat God that way, all we deserve from him is our judgment. We are just left with a mountain of debt against him that we can't pay off by ourselves. A few years back, a friend of mine took a girl out for a first date and um, unlike Ben's suggestion he did not take her out to church for a first date he took her out for a meal and uh, at the end of the evening he realized he had no cash on him so he he put his um, his credit card down on the little you know silver uh, plate and off it went to the cash uh, till and it came back having been declined which always makes you feel like a criminal doesn't it and never looks great on a first date (laughs) So desperate thinking, then a brainwave. He tells the young lady that he's just going to nip out to the loo. But under cover of that premise, he heads out of the restaurant, runs down the street to the cash point where he has his debit card refused as well. So he rushes back to the restaurant, slips in at the table, strangely out of breath for a guy who says he's just been to the loo. More desperate thinking. when he suddenly realized that She was smiling at him. It's okay, she said. I've paid. 
Folks, we owe God a life of living with him as our king. And none of us have done that. None of us. Morally and spiritually, each one of us is in debt to him. And we deserve judgment for that. And the only way for us to avoid that judgment is for someone owing nothing. Someone who is infinitely in credit with God. Being willing to step into our shoes and pay for us. And the Bible tells us that that is exactly who Jesus is. And exactly what Jesus has done for us. He became a man in order to die under the judgment that we deserve. And through Jesus dying and rising again, God is saying loud and clear to us, it's okay. I've paid. You can be forgiven. And ever since then, the risen Jesus has been calling on people to ask for the forgiveness that he paid for. And to step on into the relationship with God that we were made for in the first place. Now you might say, well, well, hold on, Ken. I don't need that. I've lived a decent life. But if living a decent life is, is enough, then why did God send his son to die? No. Whether we've, whether we've sent big time or, or small time, we all desperately need God's forgiveness. We do. Not just because of the way we've treated God and the world that he's made, but, but because, well, because of what Jesus says in verse 38. Do you see? Forever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. See what Jesus is saying? It's so confronting, isn't it? He's saying, I'm going to come back to judge this world. And those who stand in judgment on me and reject me now, I will stand in judgment on them and reject them then. He's coming back. Jesus is coming back. And if we won't listen to him now, what hope is there for us then? These are huge issues for us here, aren't there? Huge issues. But do you see, Christianity can't be a crutch just for the week. Because, hey, we're all weak. We've all sinned. And we all, therefore, need what Jesus has to offer. Just as much as we need water, food, and air. So finally, let me ask that third question. Is Christianity escapist? Does it make life easier? Just like a crutch makes life easier because your leg isn't working. Does Christianity make life easier? That's the question. Well, can I ask you what you make of verse 34 then? Does it look like escapism? Have a look down. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So what do you think? Does that sound easier? Well, only if you're some kind of masochist. You see what it says? Jesus says you must deny yourself. And deny yourself, deny yourself means saying no. Jesus says you must say no to self-rule, no to self-gratification, no to selfishness. He actually says, he says, actually the heart of what this is, is that I've lived my life to serve others. And now you must do the same. You must live to serve others. And can I just say, as Christians, if we fail to do that for you, then I'm really sorry. But it is not the way of the master. If we've treated you badly, then we need to ask you for forgiveness. And we need to ask God for forgiveness. Because anyone who claims to follow Jesus should love as Jesus loved. They're going to have to deny self and take up the cross and follow him in sacrificial living for the sake of others. 
And let's be honest, this is the real reason why most folks choose not to follow Christ. It's not because it isn't true, but it's because they know it will be hard. I met a student off and on for about three years when I was doing student work who was absolutely fascinated by Jesus. And more and more, he became convinced that Jesus was who he said he was and, and that he, he died on Good Friday, he rose on Easter Day. He was Lord and God. But, but he cast Jesus off completely into the suburbs of his life because there was pleasure and power and, and, and popularity that he wanted instead of him. He knew it was true, but he didn't want to stand with Jesus in a world that stands against him. And I know many folks like that, which makes you wonder if those things, if pleasure, power, popularity, stops you from confronting and living with the truth of who Jesus is. Maybe those are the things that are crutch. If you're leaning on those things and not going the way of truth. But following Jesus is clearly not escapism. It it doesn't necessarily make life easier. But it does make life better. For amidst the fact that he's saying no to self, Jesus says, verse 35, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That's so counterintuitive, isn't it? But do you see the incredible promise Jesus makes to us here? He says, I'll tell you what. As you lean into me, as you lean on me, as you give your life away for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, what you are doing there is you are aligning yourself with me at the center of the universe, which is where I should have been in the first place anyway. And as you do that, you will find yourself and you will find joy. You will find great joy. Folks, human happiness is so external. If you get all the external things you know, sorted out, then you can have a little taste of it for just a while. But Christian joy is internal, and it comes from knowing and following Jesus Christ in the hardest of circumstances, which is all over life, let's face it. Which is why the early Christians at one point were, when they were being thrown to the lions, they were asked to stop singing. They were singing with joy while being thrown to the lions. But they were asked to stop. Why? Because they were putting the lions off. (laughs) They were putting the lions off their meals. Stop singing. The lions can't eat you when you're singing. Even in those circumstances, there was such joy amongst them. And and it was staggering, as you read some of the accounts of the early Christians, how they just outloved everybody. If there was an abandoned child left on the hillside, outside the city to die, which happened regularly in those days, the Christians, they went out and they got the child and they brought them home and they nursed them and brought them up. They gave their lives to serve, as the master called them to do. And in it, they found true purpose and meaning for life and great joy. Folks, could this be true? Could it be true that as you give your life away, you find it? But if you try and hold on to it, you lose it. (laughs) Do you ever feel that as you chase more life, as you grasp after happiness, that it, it just keeps slipping away from you like sand through your fingers? Well, I must conclude. I've said enough, I'm sure. Some of you might say I've said more than enough. But let me wrap up. There are three things that we've been looking at here this morning, aren't there? Christianity is not a crutch. It's not artificial. It is true. And there's so much evidence for that. Why not join me 
on the 5th of June, up at the Fox and Hounds, to check that out. It's not only needed by a few people, Christianity. We all need the forgiveness that Jesus has to offer. Why not turn to him today? And it's not an easy way out. It is tough, but there is great joy to know Jesus Christ who made us and died for us and has risen again. For above all, the symbol of Christianity is not a crutch, but a cross. And from the cross, Jesus calls out to us, who do you say I am? And if you say the Christ, then Jesus says, come, follow me. Let me pray for us. Our Father God, I pray for each one of us here today as we battle to make time amidst all the pressures of life to wrestle through the identity of Jesus. Our Father, please give us open hearts and minds to check this out for ourselves and not let anyone else do that for us. And Father God, we pray that as we do that, we find life, a life of joy in all its wonder. 